0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
2: There's like the scientific side of it and the unscientific side of it. And I think the unscientific side of it is just you're just born with this ability to kind of know what's cool, like right before it hits. And there's inklings, but you kind of can see this amplification in your mind for some reason. And then the scientific part is just how much time we spend researching.
0: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Monica Kimsaroff and Jill Singer talk about the meaning of the stuff we put in our homes.
3: Each object should really be like a reflection of your personality or say something about your life story in some way.
1: If you plug the phrase Sight Unseen into your search engine, it will lead you to an array of places. There are several movies with that title and some books, but there is only one website that will rise to the top of your search, and it's an online magazine about design, art, and the objects in our lives. Sightunseen.com is where a lot of designers and taste go to find what's new and interesting and utterly unique in our visual culture. Now, the founders and editors of SightUnseen.com have decided to write a book, and its title is How to Live with Objects, a Guide to More Meaningful Interiors. As you can imagine, it's big, bold, and beautiful, just like their site. Today, co-founders and co-writers Monica Kemsarov and Jill Singer join me to talk about their popular website, their new book, and about how to make a house into a home. Monica and Jill, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Monica, I read that you are magically drawn to swimming pools. And Jill, I understand that you're attracted to pictures of massive bodies of water, whether it be pools, oceans, fjords, beaches, you name it. Um, What is it about water that you both love so much?
3: Well, I was a swimmer actually growing up it's really, it's the only sport I was really any good at, but really like anytime I'm in a bad mood, if I'm at the beach, if I just like walk to the water and stare at the water, I kind of just feel better. So for me, that's what that is. Monica, what about you? For me, it's actually, it's funny that
2: you ask because I sometimes think about this, <laughs> like I'll like sit there and like ponder it when I'm either at the beach or at a pool. Um, and the conclusion that I've come to is that I think it has to do with the color of the water, like that like turquoise sort of vibrant turquoise hue, something about it. I think that color somehow just is so beautiful and touches like some sort of primal thing in me. I love that that similarity was something that
1: you only discovered, you know, after meeting and <laughs> starting your your business relationship and, and collegial mm-hmm. relationship. It's such a, a nice thing to have in common. Before I talk to you about your brand new book, I'd love to take a little bit of a deep dive into your backgrounds and talk about how mm-hmm. you got to this particular moment in time. And I want to start with Jill, if, if you're both okay with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your dad was a journalist. Your mom was an English teacher. Uh, was there a lot of reading in your house as you were
3: growing up? Yes, there was a lot of reading. There were a lot of books. I have a lot of memories of kind of like sitting on like the armchair next to the record player, like kind of like listening to records and reading books. And then when my sister and I were a little bit older, we had this thing. My parents gave it like a really dorky title. They called it, you know, like I grew up in the 80s, like when the Soviet Union was a thing. Um, so they were like, we're going to have USSR, it's stood for United, sustained silent reading which I guess was like <laughs> where we would all sit in the living room together and like I think they were just trying to make a game of having us be quiet <laughs> and read
1: <laughs> um, right, let's see who can be quietest the longest and you win it's like a really <laughs> right.
3: 80s um, version of the quiet game <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: I read that you were in love with a 1983 pop-up anatomy book by Jonathan Miller and David Pelham what did you love so much about it oh um,
3: It's a really good question. I am not like the most scientifically minded person, but I think I just really like knowing everything about certain things. I really like going deep, obviously, (laughs) into like design and arts and stuff. I really like burrowing into like my music fandom. And this pop-up book just kind of like made you (laughs) It, like, made you feel like you really, like, understood how the human body worked, even though, like, the pop-up things were, like, so rudimentary as to, uh, you know, in regards to how the body actually works. It made me feel kind of, like, powerful, like, knowing knowing all this about the human body. What were you imagining you wanted to do professionally
1: at that point in your life?
3: I kind of knew I wanted to be a journalist from a pretty young age. I think I just... Was following in my dad's footsteps to a certain extent, even though he was more of a reporter. <laughs> when I was a kid, actually, he used to work for the paper in St. Louis, the St. Louis Post Dispatch. And when I was a kid, we basically pitched the post that we would go to Disney World as I was like, I think 14, and write an article together, like a co byline article on like what it was like to bring a teenager to Disney World. So I had my first byline at 14, which was definitely, like, a nepotism thing, but it was still, like, it's, like, planted the seed for definitely, like, wanting to be a journalist. And I took some magazine journalism classes in college. I I didn't study journalism at all, but I think it was always in my head that that's what I wanted to do.
1: You were accepted to Stanford University, but I understand your parents tried to bribe you with a car if you went, would go to Washington University instead. Yeah. Why didn't they want you to go to one of the best schools in the world? I think for money.
3: Um, I think uh, they were like, OK, well, we, we won't go bankrupt if we send you to Stanford, but like it's definitely more money. And then, you know, I think it was just because they wanted to me to be close. California just seemed like a whole other world away. And I was a very typical teenager. I think I said to them, but like, what if I see you when I'm out? <laughs> um, so I really was not interested. I was not interested in going to watch you.
1: You decided to go to Stanford where you majored in English. I understand you had Tobias Wolfe as a professor, yes. but you've said that Stanford wasn't the right school for you academically. Why, why not?
3: Well, I actually don't know if it was the right school for me academically, right? Because I've never been to another one. Um, But I felt like a little bit like I was like floundering a little bit. Like I I really enjoyed being an English major, but I didn't really feel like there was necessarily like a hand on my shoulder kind of guiding me towards things that would interest me a little bit more within that topic. And then also just kind of trying to figure out what else might complement that, like I look back and I think, well, why didn't I ever take an art history class? If that's something that was it is obviously so interesting to me. After college, you moved to New York City and
1: got a job at Entertainment Weekly as an intern. Um, how did you get that
3: job, and and what was that experience like for you? I just blindly applied, actually. Um, I only applied to one job in New York and that was it. I I think the rest I applied in California because that's where most of my friends were going to be. I applied to some movie studios in Los Angeles and I applied to some magazines maybe there too. I don't even know if there were any there based at the time. I remember like everyone, all of my friends were staying in San Francisco and they were all getting an apartment together and I kind of had to decide like whether to like stick it out and see if I got this New York internship Or just kind of abandon it, and I I did stick it out, and I got this phone call that I got in the internship. I was like driving down the 101, (laughs) and I like pulled over and I started crying.
1: (laughs) That's a big deal. I mean, to get a major, to get an internship at a major national magazine like that at that point in your life
3: is a very big deal. Yeah, I was crying in part because I was so excited, and I was crying in part because it was like such a huge change. My sister lived in New York, so I, I had been a couple of times before, but. You know, I wasn't one of those people who was who from birth was like, I'm moving to New York. You know, it was just like something I was like, well, that could be interesting and seems like a good place to be if I want to be a writer. But yeah, I've been here now for 22 years. So it was a good choice.
1: You ultimately didn't get a permanent job at Entertainment Weekly. So you temped for a while and then you worked at a medical journal. Were you upset about not getting the full time job at Entertainment Weekly? Yeah. (laughs)
3: <laughs> it was. Um, you know, there's an internship program. <laughs> it's actually really funny. There's kind of like this hierarchy of interns at Entertainment Weekly. I don't think the magazine even exists anymore. And, and even if it did, I don't know how how long this this hierarchy lasted. But like the summer interns were kind of like the like golden children. They got like taken on this press junket to like Puerto Rico or something like that. And then I came in in the fall and I was lucky because it was supposed to be a three-month internship, and it did get extended to six. But, you know, everyone who's an intern there wants to be an editorial assistant, and there's only so many positions. So I did not get it. And I was upset because I liked working there, and I was also upset because I just, like, you know, those first that first year of anyone's life in New York is such upheaval for everything. So I think I didn't even have an apartment to live in yet. I was still kind of, like, bopping from place to place and ended up, you know, I didn't get the internship six months before 9-11, so ended up temping for 18 months because the job market was not really happening in those 18 months. You
1: ended up at MediaBistro.com and became the deputy editor. Um, That job is what ultimately led you to ID Magazine, what was the media business like at this time? And it was sort of the halcyon days of magazines and yeah. the whole business, the whole publication business. It's changed so much since then, but it also was beginning to change right at that moment. Yeah, it
3: was. I mean, I it was an interesting place to be. I would say, you know, blogging was fairly new at the point at that point. I think Gawker had started like maybe the year or two before I joined Media Bistro, I didn't even like think about the fact that I was at a startup at the time. And then only in hindsight, I was like, oh yeah, that was a startup basically. Yeah, it was definitely like those days of like, we would do these things like write articles on like who was power lunching at Michael's and these things that like you don't even (laughs) think about anymore because they're so irrelevant. But yeah, everything was kind of wild, wild west. Like you didn't know what was happening, but- magazines were still such a thing that there was like huge business apparently in trying to help people get published in them, which is basically what we did. And then at the same time, I was eventually looking for, for a job for myself, which I was able to do because of the job I had.
1: So talk a little bit about how your job at Media Bistro led you to the opportunity at ID Magazine.
3: Well, I ran this column called Revolving Door, which basically anyone who was leaving their job would email me and say, "This is I'm leaving. This is where I'm going." And then we would publish all the comings and goings. And then a friend of mine actually wrote in a woman named Ruth Alchek, and she said, "I'm leaving my job at ID." Um, she, you know, had ostensibly written in to have it be published in *Revolving Door*, but I wrote her back and I said, "Oh my god, would you maybe like put in a good word for me there? Because that seems like something I'd be interested in doing." I I liked media, but, like, I was really more interested in doing kind of, like, arts and culture reporting. I thought maybe I would be a book critic, or I thought maybe I would be a music critic. And design was not something I particularly knew anything about, but I had read ID before, and I thought that that would be, like, an interesting place for me to work, basically. So she did, and I applied and got it, like, four months later. (laughs) It was a while.
1: (laughs) Uh, before we talk about how you met Monica, I want to talk with her about her background mm-hmm. before she met you. So, Monica, I understand you spent your childhood putting bugs <laughs> under a children's microscope <laughs> and ended
2: up at the head of your high school calculus class. Did you want to be a scientist when you were growing up? I did, actually. Yeah. I I thought I was going to be a scientist basically right up until I started applying for college. Granted, when I was young, I also went through phases of wanting to be an architect and an interior designer, which I probably didn't even really know what that meant at the time. But um, yeah, most of it, it was science for me. I was I was a science and math person. And is it true you decided to switch to journalism so you wouldn't have to work
1: in a lab full of what you call dorky guys?
2: Uh, <laughs> that's how I think it went. Of course, now I'm not <laughs> quite sure, but I remember that um, I was looking at colleges in science and it must have been gosh my junior year or like as I was starting that process that my journalism teacher in high school um where I also did the the newspaper she was the one who was sort of like wait a minute like you're gonna throw this writing talent away what are you doing you should be a writer you should be a journalist And I'm thinking like, what? No, I'm gonna be a scientist. (laughs) And then I think somewhere between those two things, both that and also realizing that the lifestyle that scientists lead was maybe not the most exciting to me. I think between those two things, that's how I ended up pivoting. I mean, I think I had shadowed a microbiologist at some point, I don't remember how old I was, but there was like a day we were supposed to shadow someone who was a professional and something you were interested in. And I spent the day in the lab and it was so fascinating. Like I remember being so fascinated by the machines and the processes and the work they were doing and the experiments and the research, but it was definitely, you know, you're in a lab under artificial lighting. It's quiet. It's a bunch of people who are not sort of interested in culture and I mean, this is a very stereotypical <laughs> viewpoint that I have when I was young, but it wasn't kind of the same as the exciting life as a, of a journalist where you're out like meeting people and seeing things and doing things and, and living this like what at the time seemed like a more glamorous lifestyle to me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Whenever I was younger and thought about what it was like to be a journalist, I either thought of Brenda Starr or Rosalind Russell and his Girl Friday. (laughs) That was sort of the the way I envisioned this fantasy world. Um, You attended the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. And at that point, was there a specific segment of journalism you were looking to pursue? Did you want to work in newspapers? Or did you always know you wanted to go into more of the magazine world?
2: Yeah, I was fully a magazine person. In fact, like when I took classes in the journalism school, it was magazine focused. And then I also, I don't know if you're going to ask me about this, but I worked on an online magazine during college as well. Yes. Um, well actually
1: I was gonna go into your experience at Surface, but if you wanna talk about the online magazine during college, oh, I'd yeah. love to hear more.
2: Yeah, so that was kind of my formative experience because it was very early to have an online magazine. Yeah. Um, it was ninety what I graduated high school in ninety seven, so it was ninety eight to two thousand one. And I think I started in ninety Nine maybe, um, and my friends had an online music magazine called Rocket Fuel, and I worked on that with them. So it was only like three or four of us, and then a bunch of contributors. But we kind of had like online meetings on—I don't remember what we were using AOL or something. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. uh, you know, we we interviewed bands and we reviewed albums and we posted it all online, and it was like very early and very weird thing to be doing, but that was kind of my first taste of working at a quote-unquote magazine. In 2004, you got a
1: freelance writing assignment at the Design and Culture Publication Surface Magazine. Yes. I read that because you, at the time, knew nothing about design but so needed the money, you read a textbook about design and then went for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, do you remember which textbook i I was like try i was trying desperately to find more information about
2: this it was like what textbook was it but people would be starting to read it right away it was so it was very dry though it was basically like here's the history of the decorative arts you know and and i was just cramming basically how did the article end up coming out were you happy with it well, that's also a funny story <laughs> because my first article for Surface was interviewing Fabio Novembre um, in like a QA and a for the magazine. And I was so nervous and I researched and I like wrote all these questions out and I was, you know, very excited about this interview. And I guess I must have done it by email because then I remember that the question, the answers came back and I was mortified because they were all not really answers to my questions. Like they were these non sequiturs (laughs) and these like bizarre chairs are life and emotion. You know, it was like this ridiculous, (laughs) ridiculous response. And I wrote, I was so afraid I wrote my editor like thinking I was going to get in trouble. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I can't write a story based on these answers. I'm in over my head. And I I sent them the Q&A which I think I must have been meaning to write into an actual article. And they wrote back and they were like, are you kidding? This is genius. <laughs> They're like, we love it. We're publishing it. Word for word as a Q&A. It's hilarious. And um, thank you. <laughs> and they printed every word, right? I don't think they changed anything. No, they did. They printed it like exactly as is. And it was really funny because, you know, it was this kind of very eccentric, very Italian kind of romance take on the 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 very straightforward interview
1: you also worked as a reporter and writer at new york magazine and as the senior associate editor at 17 magazine and you know this is also similar to what i was asking jill you worked at both publications during a time of profound changes in the media business what what was that like for you at that time
2: well, so New York Magazine, um, I started at during college because I Northwestern has an internship program where you spend one quarter of school actually interning in the field. So I worked at New York Magazine my junior year for three months or whatever it was. And this was in 2000, I think. So that was especially a wild time in magazines. I mean, I remember I got to New York having maybe only been there once before and I plunged into this world of New York magazine being this like green Midwestern naive person who didn't know anything. I mean I was sort of cool like I knew culture and music and stuff. I was like focusing on music even at New York magazine trying to write about music but I was like thrown into this media world of complete like debauchery and hedonism and like partying people were doing drugs at parties you know it was just like a total <laughs> glamorous moment of new york media life and of new york magazine in particular and like i was going to dinners and clubs and like it was it was hilarious because it was just completely alien to me i was like this like hipster emo kid from Ohio, and I was like trying to dress up in like short skirts and go to clubs with my friends, being like, Where am I? <laughs> but you know, it was really fun. I mean, it, it definitely made me fall in love with New York and with you know, working in in that part of the media. Um, you know, that all started to change later on. But but at the time I did my internship and at the time I graduated and worked at New York Mag, it was definitely a vibe. <laughs> and When I ended up at 17, that was really just because I had been a fact checker at New York. And it was a little bit hard to go from fact checker to editor at the time. Like fact checkers usually were fact checkers because they had other jobs on the side. Like they were a novelist or working on something else. And fact checking was just kind of like something they did for money. So I was like really committed to becoming a career editor. And 17 had a title that I wanted. And my boss there I really loved. So I met with her for the first interview and I was like, oh, you're amazing. I just want to work with you. So it was sort of weird that I ended up at 17 and in the end I really hated it and it made me like hate teenagers forever um yeah (laughs) um, (laughs) enough said (laughs) it was just completely nothing I was interested in and teenagers the ones who like wrote us letters and interacted with us I just were like oh you're gross like stop
1: (laughs) Mm. well you ended up meeting you both ended up quite serendipitously at ID magazine Mm -hmm. in 2005 Do you remember your first meeting? What was that like?
2: Um, My first memory is just, no, more of being in the office and you sitting at your desk. But it was a very small team. It was just Julie Lasky, Cliff Kwong, and me. And then Jill joined, and we had two art directors. So it was a very, like, intimate staff. So we all spent a lot of time together. And we all got along for the most part. I mean, it was really fun working there. Mm -hmm. It, It didn't feel like work.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things about doing something that you love. It just feels like it's just life and not laborious at all. But you've said, and I'm not sure who said this, so I'm just going to say you've is in the sort of more rhetorical sense, um, that ID was a really weird magazine, a prestige magazine owned by a Midwest company that also owned hobby and genealogy and firearms magazines. And I had just started in 2005, I think, or maybe 2006. I started writing for Print Magazine Mm -hmm. and then later joined the editorial staff. It was well after you Mm -hmm. left ID, but I had a lot of the same experiences working with this same kind of bizarre publishing company in the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. How were you able to make it work as long as you did? You lasted a lot longer than I was able to. I think
3: it was a blessing and a curse, their interaction In some ways, they really didn't know what to do with us. And I was like, we're the New Yorker of F&W publications. We we won a National Magazine Award. And on the one hand, because they didn't know what to do with us, there was maybe, like, a little bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We did some crazy things. Like, I convinced them to, like, let me go to the south of France to go to, like, design camp for a week so that I could, like, cover this design studio. (laughs) Um, But then, on the other hand, I I just, like, remember always, like, wrangling for budgets and, like, because they didn't understand understand what we did, they didn't understand, like, why the cost-cutting measures that they were, like, applying to other magazines wouldn't apply to us, and it was a a mess in many ways, Um, but it was, like, a fun mess for Mm -hmm. a while.
1: (laughs) Well, it was a great team. I mean, look at what you've all done, Cliff and Julie. I mean, it's just extraordinary, the careers you've had. Yeah. Yeah. You worked there for four years with this teeny tiny staff. You produced a stunning magazine month after month with very, very few resources. And as somebody that was working on print magazine, again, more on the sidelines as a writer than a staff member, but then later as a staff member, um, I I was privy to a lot of the the cost cutting. And you both left together seven months before the magazine actually folded.
2: Mm -hmm. Why did you leave at the time that you did? (laughs) Well, Julie left before us. So it all was precipitated by Julie leaving because what happened was that the magazine passed into new hands. We had two guys who were kind of running it at that point. Julie did not, I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she was not happy working under those circumstances. And she left first. So once she left us, we had lost our buffer to the heads of the magazine. And um, I think that was really difficult for us because Julie was always the one managing the relationship with them and it was very strained. And yeah, like I think contentious even at, at points. So once she left and it was just us, you know, we were so committed to the magazine, even though it was difficult working with the people in charge that we did push to them a vision of us taking over. So we were, the two of us, saying, hey, like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to relaunch the website. We're going to completely reinvision it. We're going to breathe new life into the magazine, put us in charge. We'll co-run it essentially and give us a big raise because we were being paid like peanuts. Mm. So we like came to them with this plan, but at the same time, our relationship with them was kind of souring and they kept us kind of in limbo for... So long, like letting us run the magazine without giving us raises and without telling us, yes, here's your your promotion. That we started getting really frustrated, and we sort of felt that something was going on. So we actually went out and got another job offer, <laughs> uh, the two of us, which was insane. Like uh, another magazine offered both of us a job together. Incredible. Um, yeah, and when we went back to them saying, "That's boss. I, I love this," and we went back to them saying, "Hey, look, we have a job offer." both of us. And, you know, you, we really need you guys to make a decision. We've had interviews with you. We've been working here for three years, four years. It's now or never. They're like, okay, like, don't take the job. We're committed to you. So in good faith, we're going to give you like, you know, I think it was like a pittance of a raise and let's just like get through the next issue of the magazine. And so we turned down the shop offer and all the while we're hearing warnings from the publisher who's like secretly whispering in our ear that the people who run the magazine are, what did they say? That we were being too aggressive or something?
3: We were being too aggressive. Yeah.
2: It was something insanely sexist (sighs) and horrible. Um, And he was hearing them sort of talk trash about us. And then we actually closed the issue and the day after we were fired.
1: I remember when the word came out that you both were fired mm-hmm. and the shockwaves yeah. through the design industry and the magazine industry. I don't know how many people knew that you'd t- turned down this other opportunity, yeah. but because of the Herculean role that you had in, in resurrecting that magazine, mm-hmm. was it was just unthinkable that that happened. And ultimately, when the magazine closed, it was the actual, actually the first time and only time in my life that I ever went to a funeral for a magazine. Yeah, yeah. it was sad. Yeah. Where we all cried and commiserated yeah. and, and sort of pulled our hair out because we couldn't believe that this magazine that had really influenced so much thinking about yeah. design between the two of you, Cliff and Julie, it was just unthinkable.
3: Yeah, I didn't actually even go out of the wake because I was so I was so angry. I was mm-hmm. so angry that they had like run this 54-year-old <laughs> property into the ground and I was so angry at the way we had been treated and I was just like, I I can't do it.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
0: Visit slack.com to get started.
1: You started your business together the day after you left. Yeah. Um, you already had tickets to go to the Milan Furniture Fair that upcoming Monday. You decided to go anyway. You immediately brainstorm a name, printed up super basic business cards, which I can hardly believe were basic, knowing the two oh, of you. Oh, they basic. And, and you bought your domain, and that was it. Like, business started. How did you come up with the name Sight Unseen? It's such a good name, and it's, you know, how did you do that in, like,
2: 48 hours? Well, first, I should say that the business cards were so basic that they only had follow us on Twitter. That was it. It we didn't was like know,
1: calling cards. We didn't know what we
2: were going to do yet. So we're like, just follow us on Twitter. Here's the business name. It was like very intentionally mysterious. And people were like, afterwards, they were laughing because they thought when we passed these cards out that we had a business like all ready to go. And we were like, just teasing it. And we're like, no, we literally didn't know what we were doing. Like we just like wanted to like make it look intentional. But then, yeah, the name,
3: Jill. The name... Okay, I will start out by saying we really did not have, like, a firm concept the weekend we left. But we had a big lunch (laughs) after we left. And we were talking about, you know, and we talked about before, like, what are the things that were kind of, like, most interesting to us about ID? And, you know, one of the things for me, especially, and Monica as well, I'm sure, was going into people's studios and seeing how they worked, um, seeing how things were actually made you know, that was how I got my design education. And I loved translating that for readers. Um, And I think that's partly why ID was successful under us is because we were good at like translating that kind of stuff for just like anyone for, you know, like obviously ID had like a very industry specific audience, but there were people who read it who, who didn't have any connection to design. So we wanted to like, quote unquote, (laughs) pull back the curtain (laughs) on design. Um, And we were kind of just trying to do like some, I I remember like reading, I think T Magazine had like a super rudimentary website at that point. And I was just like, we were just like reading a bunch of stuff, like looking for like words that like jumped out at us. And I think we're like, okay, well, what about like unseen?
2: Yeah, we were exchanging emails that were literally lists of words. And I think Jill sent a list that included unseen and then it just like sparked. You
1: mentioned You felt that it might be the right time to pull back the curtain on how things were made. Mm -hmm. And it seemed as if you were very intentionally trying to demystify the process of design, which Mm -hmm. at the time was not the way things were being done. What gave you the sense that the cultural moment was right for that type of demystification, that people wanted that?
3: Well, it was very much at, like, this is 2009, right around the time of, like, the slow food movement and just, like, Mm -hmm. kind of artisanal everything. And the aesthetic that was, like, coming into play was, like, I went to a barn and I brought all this stuff home and I decorated my restaurant. You know, like, I don't think we were ever, like, consciously, like, oh, well, let's, like, take these lessons that we've learned from the slow food movement and, and apply them to design, but... It really was, like, the same kind of interest. Like, if you were going to buy something, well, wouldn't it be better, like, if you kind of understood, like, the life cycle that surrounded it and the context in which it was made? And what does the person look like who made it? And, like, what does their studio look like? And what are the weird things they collect? And what are the things they keep around their studio for inspiration? And these were, like, the super, like, rudimentary things that, like, went into, like, all of our initial interviews. And then, you know, we took, like, the summer to, like, figure out what we were going to do with side and scene. And that like, eventually spun out into us taking these, like, scouting trips to Europe where we would, like, visit people's studios. We went to some factories. We literally, like, went to a pasta and ice cream factory to figure out how those mm-hmm. kinds of things were made. Like, we we were really committed. Well, it had nice <laughs>
2: packaging. Yeah. forget. We were Don't really forget.
3: committed to this idea. Yeah. <laughs> How
1: how did you fund this? Was it all your own money?
2: Oh, uh, We did a Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I knew someone who knew the founder of Kickstarter. So Kickstarter had just begun, and it was like a friend of a friend of the founder who was like, hey, my friend started this thing. Why don't you try it? And we raised, I think, $4,000. Yep. And a lot of the premiums for that Kickstarter we got as like gifts from people who knew we were trying to start over and we were struggling a little bit. So, you know, some brands and just like restaurants gave us gifts to offer and that paid for both some of these trips as well as our, the cost of developing the site. 13 years later, site unseen is way more
1: than an online, just an online magazine. It's grown to be a shop, a design fair, a creative consultancy. It's a globally recognized brand with an extremely distinct point of view. Mm -hmm. Initially, I read that you decided when you first started that you were going to try a million different things and see what stuck. With all of this success that you have now, did you have stumbles along the way? Did you have failures? Did you start things that you stopped? Did you rework things that weren't working but you still believed in? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Talk a little bit about that if you can.
2: So I will have to say personally, I want to just mention this is that like, the way that I tend to do things, and I don't know if Jill's just been dragged along by me or if this is the same for her, but I tend to get very excited about projects and rather than planning them out like 100% to a T, which often I, I find for other people makes them take longer, makes them second guess themselves, you know, makes them stress out about things, sometimes like slows them down or you know they get scared and they quit. Um, for me, I've always been sort of the opposite. We're all like rushing into a project, just trying to get momentum and taking everything like one step at a time because I don't want to lose that momentum or lose that, the nerve to do it. So that's the approach that I've always had with Insight Unseen to like our projects and, you know, and in, in my other business endeavors, which is like, rather than obsess over everything and try to get it perfect, like don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, like let's just dive in and like try it. Um, and I think a lot of the projects that we've done have, we've, we've done them that way. And I always think it's a good thing because it means things happen faster. They happen without as much um, intimidation or hesitation. Um, But it does mean that sometimes we have to quit things (laughs) or, or, you know, or they don't go as well as as we hoped. Um, I mean, offsite has had its ups and downs over the years. Um, It started off as NoHo Design District. And again, this was just us saying, you know what, how come New York Design Week isn't as great as London Design Week or all these other fairs in other cities where you have this like groundswell of energy and innovation and experimentation and talent and youth. And it's very like localized and you get to sort of see the heart of, you know, the beating heart of this city's, design scene whereas in New York it just felt like it was like a trade fair um and so I think we just (laughs) went into it blindly being like let's make one (laughs) um and just started and you know like just started literally like started walking around the neighborhood and approaching landlords of empty storefronts to try to find spaces just to insert people's work into and Everything we did was so grassroots like that where it wasn't, hey, we'll go out and raise money and like make a business plan and have a whole deck <laughs> for this project. It was more like we're just going to go out there and do it. And I think that meant that with Offsite, like what started as NoHo Design District, we tried to take over NoHo. Then we found out that the neighborhood board was like, what the heck are you doing? You can't just call something a NoHo Design District. We have like a whole... <laughs> Business board here and like who are you? You know, and we were like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> um, so things like that, where it's just like we we went into things like a little more naively, which was both a benefit and a drawback. But you know, then Noho to district eventually became offsite. Offsite eventually became, do we really want to do this anymore? You know, it's been a, like a lot of those kind of being open to evolution and and things kind of stopping and starting.
3: Yeah. And I would say definitely like I play a lot more devil's advocate. (laughs) Um, And I'm like a bit maybe more practical about what we have the capacity to manage. But yeah, things have happened. They're up and downs. Like we had an online store for a really long time and that's kind of just like run its course because in terms of money, like it's it's not a real it's not a real um source of income for us and cuz if you're not going to devote your entire business to selling small goods you're not going to be very successful at small, selling small goods and i think that was like a lesson we eventually learned
2: it's also not what we want to spend our time doing yeah
1: one thing that i thought was really interesting about the way you sort of delineate your roles in the business You've said that at the beginning of your partnership, you both had similar skill sets and have said that mm-hmm. neither you neither of you had a, a specific head for business. How did you grow and develop and evolve those abilities and then begin to understand what you did best or
3: or more uniquely? I think for a long time both of us were doing everything and it was like not it, yeah, it really was not helpful. It was also that because when we were starting out, we really, it still is just the two of us, but we have a team of like freelance writers and stuff like that now. But at the beginning, we really were writing every single article and we were like kind of committed to like the kind of long form journalism that we had come from in print. And it was this like insanely time consuming process where every article was like a long form piece that would appear in the well of a magazine. And... Because we were both doing that for so long, it took a while for us to be like, okay, what if we actually, I think it was like maybe five years in, um, when we were like, okay, well, what if we really actually split this up? And instead of both of us managing the writers, I'm going to head up editorial and I'm going to like hire writers and I'm going to manage them and edit all the pieces and da-da-da-da. And Monica was more interested than I was, I think, in taking on some of the more business-related aspects, like the publishing side of like finding the money, building partnerships, building brand collaborations, like that kind of thing.
2: And it's important to say that we didn't make any money for five years. So it yeah. didn't become an issue right. until five years in. So that was when we started having more interaction with brands and partners. and And it just was a natural thing. Also, we were stepping on each other's toes a lot. It was just yeah. too crazy. We needed to get out of each other's hair in order to like preserve the relationship. So I think it was a moment of like, okay, you know, if I don't have to split this with you and babysit you on this then like, you don't have to babysit me on that. And we're just doing our own thing a little bit more. So yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. When the money came, I started taking care of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You You seem to have a knack for understanding trends, how they form, how they splinter, how they die, how they define us. How do you Keep your finger on the sort of pulse of the cultural zeitgeist in the way that you do,
2: well, I think part of it's just innate because I think I've been doing that since I was like a teenager. In some ways, you just either have the skill or you don't because I think what happens for me is that something will come on my radar and it'll feel completely intuitive, but I'll be like, oh, that's gonna be huge. I don't know why I said that. You know what I mean? Like I saw it. I think I posted a an Instagram post in like, 2014 where I was like looking down at my feet and there was a terrazzo floor mm. and I was like calling it terrazzo is like the next big trend <laughs> you know and like obviously I had seen it around so it's not that it I was the first one to like see terrazzo like you know there was something happening but I think it's some sort of innate well, you're the skill the first to be one able... to sort of
1: name it in that moment you were well
2: yeah I don't know if I was but the point is yeah the point is that like I think it's a special innate skill to kind of be able to pick up on something, feel why it's right just in your bones because of whatever came before or whatever's happening at the moment. And then for some reason, it like sets off your spidey sense. <laughs> and it there's like the scientific side of it and the unscientific side of it. And I think the unscientific side of it is just, you're just born with this ability to kind of know what's cool, like right before it hits. And there's inklings, but you kind of can see this amplification in your mind for some reason. And then the scientific part is just how much time we spend researching and being aware and like looking.
1: I have one more question about your site. And then I want to talk about your book, your beautiful book. One thing that I was really struck by when I was doing my research on your history was something that you said about how picky you are and how if you were less picky you would probably make a lot more money and you said you said this there is such an immediate feedback online and it almost always becomes oppressive in a way because you see that the kitschiest cheesiest stuff often gets the most likes and goes the most viral and then you're like sort of caught in this dilemma how do we play to that and publish stuff that we don't necessarily feel passionate about because we know what we'll get numbers? Or do we stick to our instincts and try to keep our standards really high? And I can say you have both kept your standards really high. Um, it's a big temptation, you know, as I look through the analytics of the things that I work on to want to repeat doing the things that do really well when you do know deep inside that that's compromising your editorial integrity and you haven't done that how have you been able to manage that tension
3: i think some of it comes from being gen x <laughs> well, just in like what a healthy, in what way like a healthy um distrust of anything being too successful <laughs> um, but i don't know you know gosh it's really complicated actually I think for both of us, it's like this wouldn't be worth doing if it was just this like basic, kind of like basic thing where like it wasn't, it didn't feel special and and didn't mean something to people. And it wouldn't mean something to people if it was more generic, you know? And Mm -hmm. especially because it didn't, it wasn't particularly financially successful for a long time. It had to be like worth coming to work for every day, coming to work in quotes. And... Some of it is, you know, maybe we had a little bit more of the freedom to do that. You know, Monica has another business and she does some freelancing. So this isn't like necessarily like the only way both of us make money. Part of it was just like this refusal to like be an entrepreneur um, if it wasn't like on our own terms. You know, there, then you may as well just be like working for a company because if somebody if somebody else is like, you know, telling, telling you what to do then may as well just be working someplace else.
2: I mean, I would say that I think from the minute we started Sight Unseen in 2009, we said that this was going to be... Basically, we had been so frustrated in our jobs at ID and in the circumstances at ID and what happened at ID that... We almost went into sight unseen in this rebellious moment of like, okay, if we're going to do our own thing, then we're really going to do our own thing. And like, screw the man, you know, like we're going to literally be the most self-indulgent editors, you know, we could possibly be and really just publish what we like, what we're interested in, and we're not going to listen to anyone. And I think that was the spirit that we went into doing it. And I think that that's persisted. And that's kind of been part of why we have resisted the temptation to go into like, you know basically watering down the content to the degree that it'll be more mainstream, that we'll get more likes or we'll get more traffic. Um, You know, those have all been things that we considered doing and it just didn't seem right to our mission statement, which is just to have this be about our curation and our point of view and what we love um, and what we deem to be good. And we've, and in a way we've like never purported to be anything else. You know what I mean? Like, we'll be totally honest. Like when we do our hot list, our American design hot list, it's like, it's completely subjective. It's just what we think is good. And that's, that's what it is, you know? Well that curatorial
1: eye is very evident in your beautiful new book How <laughs> to Live with Objects a guide to more meaningful interiors and you start the book with a question I'd like to ask you which is what is it that defines a home
3: Well we argue is, <laughs> <laughs> we is it the curtains we argue is it the window treatments So basically the central argument of the book is you don't have to hire a professional interior designer. You don't have to have a decorator. You don't have to have a ton of money. You don't have to like follow all these rules that have come down from shelter magazines or design books in the past about like how to quote unquote make your house a home. What you really need to do is be like very intentional and educated about the objects you bring into your house and how each object should really be like a reflection of your personality or say something about your life story in some way. Like maybe it tells a story about like the friend who gave it to you or the period in your life you were at when you got it or the trip you took when you bought it, how that can just like make even the state of being in your home much more meaningful
1: in the book, you encourage people to forget about the idea that only expensive startups objects are worth having and suggest instead that they buy what they feel drawn to, what feels meaningful or what expresses their personality, whether it's a vintage teapot found at a garage sale for a dollar or an investment piece made by a younger, hot, up-and-coming designer. How do you suggest people allow themselves to do this, give themselves permission to start to open up the possibilities of what they can consider style?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think partly when we were writing this book, we assumed that it's something people were a little bit primed to do anyway. I think most people have had the experience of going to a sale or a garage sale or, you know, a thrift store or whatever it may be. And, Finding themselves drawn to something, I think it was more um, the idea of having them shift their mindset a little bit into into thinking that what the priorities are for decorating your home or making a home might be a little bit different from what they were taught. So I th- I don't think anyone would feel alien to the idea of bringing in an interesting object. I think it's more like giving them the thought that oh, it's you should celebrate this, you know, like this should be it. Like you should do more of it and you should be shopping all the time and looking all the time and like paying attention to or developing your own taste in that way rather than constantly having to rely on outside people to tell you what's good or tell you what is worthy of being in your home. So I think it's more not not sort of a change in people's behavior but more a change in mindset to, to feel like, yeah, I am going to give myself permission to be the driver of my own style and my own space. And that's kind of where the book is meant to come in, to kind of give them another view on how things can be done and encourage them to spend more time thinking about shopping or looking and collecting in, in, a, in a way that maybe they didn't really understand was valid. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I, I came away from the
1: book feeling and, and sort of builds a little bit on, on what I learned from Marie Kondo, you know, does this spark joy? Yeah. And yes, I do ask myself that question now with nearly everything that I, I acquire. But what I, I think I learned from your book was how do I curate a collection of things that are amplified by joy together? in a way that I hadn't thought about before. You know, how do mm-hmm. I create this sort of sense of singularity in, in a collection or even just in my home, you know, on my bedroom night table? What do I want to put there? How do I want mm-hmm. it to make me feel collectively, not just individually? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is something I hadn't really thought about as much before. Yeah.
3: And it's funny, we really actually don't address that idea in the, in the book of like, Throwing your stuff away, um, yeah. And I thank you because <laughs> I, <laughs> I I feel like you're going to be able to make it work. <laughs> like you yeah. know, bring more pieces in that maybe are result of this kind of like to switch in your mindset marie kondo is a bit of a mindfuck sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's you're, you're not it's not about waste and throwing things away actually i think you're encouraging mm-hmm. readers to acquire things slowly yeah. more serendipitously yeah. so mm-hmm. that they don't are so they never are in a position where they're staring at this sort of mountain of of choice and mm-hmm. and things yeah. um, and so in that vein, are there any best practices that, that you can share or one or two on how to choose things? If you find you like a lot of things, because <laughs> I tend yeah. to like a lot of things. Are there Are there questions that people should ask themselves when confronted with this sort of plethora of choice?
2: Well, so first of all, a good thing to do to ask yourself if you're wavering on a piece or, you know, you're worried that you don't have space for it is... I always ask myself, can I just take a photo of this and like post it? And will that scratch the same itch? You know what I mean? Is it, is it that I really need to have this or is it that I just want to affirm the fact that I found it interesting and like want people to know that, (laughs) you know, that I like had this moment with my eye, you know, that I'm proud of. Um, so I think taking a picture is always the first question. And then it's like, okay, if a picture is not going to be enough, if I really need to have this, um, one of the inner interview subjects in our book, uh, Linda and John Myers, um, from Maine, they do a company called wary Myers, um, where they make like candles and soaps, but they're also like major collectors and estate sailors and garage sailors. Um, Linda said (laughs) that she always says to herself, if it doesn't have a home, it's not allowed to roam. (laughs) Mm. And that's, that's just like a cute way of saying, if you can't think of anywhere you would put it in your house, like, maybe you need to like take a moment and sleep on it, you know. Um and I think it's just like yeah. simple things like that. I also feel like you know, if you run out of space, like can you build more shelves? <laughs> like <laughs> personally, <laughs> as an object lover, I'm like, well, maybe I just need more shelf space. Like there's nothing wrong with that, you know, if you want to display more things and keep collecting like, you know, if you can Find a way to do it in your home where it's organized and you're not being cluttered out of your own space. Then why not? You know, just make yourself happy. Like I feel like I don't think people need to like overthink it so much. You know.
3: And also, you know, we talk in in the book about how you should build your home slowly. And Mm -hmm. obviously, like there are certain things that you need at the very beginning. You need like your bed or or. Some place to sit, <laughs> um, but especially like the decorative objects, we really encourage just like taking your time um, mm-hmm. and knowing, you know, like we don't want you to work from like a list. Like I need this mug, I need this, da da da. But sometimes, like knowing those categories, you can be like, oh well, I actually have like. Nine million candlesticks right now. Like I don't need another candlestick. I'm I'm kind of keeping myself more open to this other category that I need. Yeah, because if you rush, also sometimes
2: you fill all the slots before yeah. you discover the thing that you really, really love. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the you know for me, it's the really, really love part of what mm-hmm. you just
1: said, which is something that I think is a common denominator between the types of articles and the types of coverage that you include on your site and what you include in the book and i was talking to somebody yesterday about your editorial choices and how it feels like you only write about what you love yeah mm-hmm. and that that sort of criteria feels like it is extended now into the book as well. Yeah. yeah. It's
3: really funny because I feel like there is this conversation where people are like, why isn't there, why isn't there more criticism in design? And on occasion uh-huh. people have asked us like, why isn't there more criticism on sight unseen? And I'm like, that's not my role. Like my role is to write about the things I love and I'm in a community with all these people who are like trying to make a living it is it's really like not what I want to be spending my life on to like tear someone down
1: yeah I agree yeah. I agree I tried to do the same thing with this podcast people have sometimes asked me "Well, oh, you know what should I expect coming on the show I'm like I'm not Barbara Walters this is not going to be <laughs> an investigative hitting. piece this is a celebration yeah. of who you yeah. are and what people can learn most from yeah. you yeah
2: well I've always told people if your project doesn't end up on the site there's your criticism yeah <laughs> we didn't we didn't like it
3: well done. sorry yeah <laughs> Or it fell to the bottom of our inbox.
1: Yeah. No. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. You extend a popular category of the Sight Unseen website into the book, the at home with section. Yeah. How did you find and then get so much access to so many remarkable homes? Who were your friends?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, Well, with some difficulty, because we wrote this. It was hard. Basically, uh, last year, like kind of like it was still pandemic times. And we, we really did, like, email everyone we knew. We, we emailed people saying, do you have a house? Can you send us scanning shots? Do you have a friend who has a cool house? Can they send us scanning shots? Um, we looked through design publications to see, like, who else had been shot, where, like, maybe we could... You know, do the same home, but like with our own spin on it. Um, it was like a gargantuan research task, um, but we do have very cool friends, so that is helpful. <laughs> um, some of the some of the homes we already kind of knew we wanted to feature. Sue Wu is a friend of ours who lives in Mexico City. Her house has been um, has popped up like a couple of times, and her whole ethos is like so in line with. The, the idea of the book we like knew we wanted to include her she's an object obsessed person she's an ob- like yeah. totally
2: obsessed mm-hmm. with objects like she'll she'll find like a tiny stone or like a hunk of metal and all of a sudden it's like this <laughs> thing of wonder you know and that's co- sort of the spirit of the book but yeah I think it was it was hard to find homes too because we were looking for something extremely specific um yeah. yes which is not just this perfectly appointed, beautiful interior that an interior designer, you know, poured over and made perfect, but something that is beautiful and will shoot well and look beautiful in a book, but also has a ton of objects <laughs> and and honestly, that's exactly what we look for for the at-home with and Unseen. And what we've always looked for is this moment of like, you walk into a space and you're like, oh, what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? That's so cool. You know, like that's sort of always been the vibe with our house tours on the site. And we've always, before we shot someone's home, we've told them like, you don't have to clean up. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't matter. Like, we're just there to see your possessions. We're just there to see like what cool stuff you have, you know, relax. It's like, that's really all we're looking for. So it's it's definitely a through line from what we've been doing, you know, for the past 10 years. And that's, I think, what is so special about the book,
1: the humanness Mm -hmm. that is expressed on on really every page of the book.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I have one last question for you both. And then I have a final question for Monica. Um, Here's the question for you both. When designing a home, one of the biggest issues that people fear is that they're going to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have to help people conquer that mentality?
3: Well, one thing we say in the book is, what do you think a vintage object is? It's something that somebody gave away. (laughs) So (laughs) you don't have to keep everything you have. Please don't throw it in the landfill. Um, But you can maybe give it to a friend who could use it more or whose taste it fits better or you can use one of these kind of like secondary market sites or even Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or just put it out on the curb somebody's
1: going to take yeah, it. Oh, it yeah free cycle yeah
2: yeah yeah I feel like worrying about making a mistake is silly because how do you know if you're going to make, make make a mistake? How do you know if yeah. you made a mistake? It's so it's so vague and subjective. It's just like if you know in the book The whole thing about the book is following your instincts and like following what you love and just trying to connect with something. And that is a process, you know, it's, it's something that you'll learn to do better over time to figure out what you like. Like maybe you think you're obsessed with something one day and then a week later you're like, oh my God, why did I buy that? I don't like it at all. You know, and that's fine. Like that is definitely not something to worry about. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just, it's a process. It's, it's all part of the same process and it's, the idea of making a mistake in a home is so weird like who's saying you made a mistake is yeah. it you
3: what's can like you, the can't way- fix it what's the worst thing that happens? Like, okay, you post it on social media and somebody's like, ooh, what's that? (laughs) I mean, like, it's just (laughs) like, there's no, there's really like no real consequence. So that's kind of what's funny too. And then at the end of the day, like you should be trying to buy things for forever, but like your taste is going to change. Like you can't Mm -hmm. help it. You know, doing what I said before, like making sure that it kind of like stays in in the market is helpful. Um, But yeah, it's kind of you no know, fun if everything is exactly the same in your house forever. You do want to like move stuff yeah. around in your own house and give it to friends and bring other things in. And, and that's what makes it like very like, fun and, and meaningful.
2: Yeah, if it's like a living thing, if it changes yeah. and evolves and, you know, nothing has to stay the same. And obviously, like if you're buying a sofa, you will worry about making a mistake if you're spending $4,000. But hey, just do some research, you know? Yeah. Monica, I have one last
1: question. Okay. Many years ago, I read that you were toying with the idea of teaming up with an interior designer friend to curate and style something you wanted to call the ugly dollhouse, oh, wherein yeah. you purchased hideous dollhouse furniture from around the web and turned it into a kind of pint sized house of design horrors. <laughs> Did you ever do it? And if so, where can we see it?
2: So I've had a lot of crazy ideas (laughs) over the years because I'm like a kind of a sort of crazy idea factory as a person in general. So I never did it, not for any specific reason. I think just the opportunity never came up. Um, But I think someone did a dollhouse since then and I got really upset. (laughs) But what they did was they had designers create dollhouse furniture, I believe, which I still felt was like Ah. some sort of a... Encroachment on that idea, but anyways, I just became obsessed with miniatures a long time ago, and this was just a wacky notion. And I also had an idea about which I haven't done about doing um, ugly comfort furniture, like reinventing the comfort furniture of our youth.
3: Um,
2: ah, yes. Like doing a show, and ugly this was a, a long chairs. time ago too. <laughs> yeah, like doing like the papas on, the husband, the beanbag chair, the lazy boy. And funny enough, I never did it, but along the way there have been examples of those things that have come out like individually from designers which I always think is funny because I'm like that should have been my show (laughs) (laughs) well further proof that nothing's really a mistake (laughs) right no gosh no
1: (laughs) Monica Kemsarov Angel Singer thank you so much so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thank
2: you for the conversation. It was really
1: fun. Monica Kemsarov and Jill Singer are the editors of the website sightunseen.com and the authors of the stunning new book, How to Live with Objects, a Guide to More Meaningful Interiors. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily White.